Okay, I'm going to put the slides up on the screen for us here, and um, you'll be able to kind of follow along. And uh, as we get started this evening, um, I do want to say this, if there's those that are listening uh, to our podcast, um, we will start a new study next week, next Wednesday night. You're invited to come out in person at seven o'clock at First Christian Church, uh, or we'll continue to do this uh, Zoom uh, Bible study as well. What we're going to talk about is um, the passage in Isaiah chapter 53 is kind of a springboard. Uh, by his wounds, we are healed. I want to talk a little bit about how uh, the humanity of Christ kind of helps us heal in so many ways. So um, keep that in your prayers and hope you'll join us next week. As of tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to finish off this study called Extra Esther. Uh, we've been taking an additional look uh, each week at some things that are in the book of Esther. And tonight, what we're going to talk about is um, uh, the festival of Purim being for us um, an understanding of how the Jews use this holiday as a longing for a better world. And so uh, you'll notice on the handout that I sent out uh, to you, um, I mentioned that the holiday of Purim is a relevant festivity for many decades, many centuries, actually. Um, and it, first of all, illustrates how to kind of combat um, anti-Semitism and the suffering that it has caused in the world. Um, I showed you a video clip uh, last week that uh, Purim is very festive. Uh, it is uh, full of merriment. It's full of drinking. It's full of costumes. Uh, in many ways, it's like carnival. Uh, but at the same time, what we find is that it goes beyond that. There's a much deeper mean to the story. And in many ways, it kind of becomes a model for the world on how to persevere through heartache and persecution. Um, obviously, kind of at the bottom of the Feast of Purim is the desire to eliminate, eliminate the Hamans of this world. Uh, but to do so, kind of this festival is used as a way of creating unity. Um, in the Jewish world, uh, there is as much differences of outlook and worldview as there is in Christianity. And so how do Jews of different outlooks, um, conservative or orthodox or secular, how do they come together? Well, the Feast of Purim, in many ways, is a way to create unity that rises above partisan politics. And um, with that, that unity brings strength to continue to overcome the obstacles that the Jewish people have had to overcome for centuries. Uh, when you think about just what's in the Bible itself, uh, you can see that they had to overcome enslavement to Egypt. They had to overcome the oppressive regimes of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome in the New Testament. Uh, of course, there are other incidents, probably the most uh, outstanding one that we're aware of is the resistance against uh, Nazis and uh, Adolf Hitler's desire to eliminate the Jews. Uh, there is still a lot of anti-Semitism in the world, and um, there is still a lot of conflict uh, among Arabs and Jewish uh, countries and uh, people groups. So uh, with that, uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, one of the first things that Mordecai uh, does is at the request of Esther is to get the people to pray. And they do so for three days and they fast as well. And uh, that is a unifying act that brings them together uh, to continue to move ahead. So uh, in the idea of Purim, there's a core concept and uh, the festival of Purim offers Jewish people and ourselves as well uh, a very powerful lesson. And I think it's the idea of not losing hope. It's the idea of persevering. Uh, it's the idea of not completely despairing to the point where uh, we give up in our desire to continue to move ahead. 
um, we find that at various times in the history of the world, uh, there are dangers, there are threats, and there are persecutions against, against different people groups. And uh, the Feast of Purim, in many ways, is a way to observe how the Jews got through one of the darkest moments of their history. And um, a core concept that is built into the Feast of Purim is the idea of justice. And you'll see on your notes there, that's a Hebrew word that is called zedekah. Uh, the T is silent. Zedekah is the idea of justice. And there are certain obligated acts in the um, festival of Purim. And when we saw that short video clip, we saw that uh, they send food to other people. Uh, they desire to help in many ways, uh, those that are uh, less fortunate. We find that in many religions around the world, there's kind of a built-in charity element to it, uh, to reach out beyond ourselves. And for the Jewish people, this core concept is rooted, and we'll watch this in a few moments when we take a look at a couple of passages of scriptures, uh, that the core concept of justice or zedekah is uh, built into the Torah and uh, the idea of helping those that are less fortunate. So those are a couple of the introductory thoughts that I had to the Feast of Purim. And the Feast of Purim is built around banquets or feasts. I'm going to show you something here in a moment, but before I do, I want to see if you have some questions or thoughts um, in just in general on the Feast of Purim? Is there anything that uh, comes to mind? Pardon me? Yes. Yeah. Um, so Mark asked the question, did they have the festival for more than one day? And the answer to that is yes. Mordecai when he establishes the Feast of Purim as an annual festival, expanded it from a one-day to a two-day celebration. And so if you kind of remember uh, some of the elements of Purim is the reading of the uh, scroll of Esther. And one of them is done uh, the first day. And one of them, I mean, reading the entire book of Esther, one of them is done the first day and there's a second reading on the second day. So uh, every year, the Jewish people hear the scroll of Esther read in its entirety two times in the, that two-day period? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, Jewish people still celebrate it today. I think we're not as familiar with it in the uh, Christian world simply because this isn't one of their high holidays like Yom Kippur or Passover. Um, uh, but yet at the same time, it is an annual event it's an annual festival. Uh, it's an annual celebration of life. Um, it's an annual uh, rejoicing that they saw another year of, uh, of being able to survive. So that's kind of built into it a little bit. Yeah. Right. So Mark said I had never heard of it before. And you're right. I mean, I'm there's a lot of things within Judaism that if we did a deep dive on it, there's a lot of uh, rituals and observations and different things that are built into the Jew uh, Judaism that we're unaware of because, you know, we're not a part of that culture. Um, but um, if you do want to learn more about that, um, usually the, uh, the library has a section of religion. And in the, uh, that section of religion, there is usually books, you're familiar, um, uh, the Whatever for Dummies series of books. Well, there's a Judaism for Dummies as well. There's Buddhism for Dummies, there's Hinduism for Dummies as well. And th that's a great way to get familiar with all the subtleties of Judaism. Uh, another way of uh, getting more familiar with some of that is a, a podcast that's only uh, usually about seven or eight minutes long, done by Rabbi David Wolpe. 
He's out in Los Angeles and um, uh, his podcast is called Off the Pulpit. And uh, it's usually seven or eight minutes long. And he usually takes a concept or a word out of Judaism and expands upon that. He's very, very good. He's the rabbi of um, uh, Mount Sinai um, a, a Synagogue out in Los Angeles. And he's one of the higher profile rabbis in the United States. But um, that's, that's another way to get a little bit more familiar with some of the subtle aspects of Judaism that actually creeps into the uh, New Testament at various times too, but we're unaware that it is so, um, it's so Jewish at times, you know, because we read it sort of with Western eyes, but there is a lot of uh, Judaism. Let's take one example. So when Jesus, his very first miracle, changing the water to wine, we are, we're all familiar with that miracle. Uh, Jesus tells uh, his uh, disciples to get some water jars. Well, they're not just water jars. They're ceremonial Jewish water jars that are filled for ceremonial washing. And uh, so that type of thing is really interesting because it becomes, that miracle becomes more symbolic. It's not just, hey, I'm changing water into wine to keep the reception going. In many ways, it's saying, I'm replacing Judaism with that which is better, you know, that type of thing. So um, so those type of things kind of creep its way into the New Testament as well. Other thoughts? Oh, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So what Beth just said, I know you couldn't hear her. Uh, she said she had the opportunity to um, pick up on a lot of these things because her mom worked down at Mount Sinai Hospital and, uh, and brought a lot of these thoughts home that she was introduced to. But if she hadn't worked down there, you probably wouldn't have, have known. So any other thoughts? So what I want to do the rest of our time, since um, I'm not really centering this Bible study around Purim, but it's kind of a setup to this right here. And uh, that is um, the feasts or translated banquets in the book of Esther uh, is really at the core of the book. Um, you'll notice uh, the term that is used for feast or banquet is uh, mishteh. And it appears 20 times in the book. Uh, it, it, it can kind of go by us pretty fast, but I'm going to show you a skeleton uh, of how the book is structured a little bit around these feasts. And it, in many ways, it's kind of a, a concentric pattern. And uh, if you're familiar with a term I've used occasionally in Bible study, um, uh, the term is chiasm, and a chiasm is an inverted on its side V, so um, it, it, it's kind of making a statement, it works itself down to the center, and then it works itself back out. So you'll notice on your handout there, down at the very bottom of the first page, it says the skeleton there, and um, it is using the feasts that are found in Esther as kind of like an outline to the book. So um, a chiasm is making a statement that has a parallel statement. And so you'll see these are paired off. A, A, small a, small a, B, B, C, C. And um, all of these things are built around the idea of a banquet or a feast, and it is counterbalanced with that as well later in the book. So let me walk you through it for a second here. So the first time the banquet or the feast appears in the book of Esther is when Xerxes calls together uh, all of these nobles uh, from the 127 provinces, and he does so for a lengthy time of international meetings. And we were introduced to that in chapter one, verses two through four. 
and Xerxes Urhasuerus' feast for the nobility throughout the empire lasts an extended period of time. And then there's a subset of that as well. So a small a. So while Xerxes is holding this uh, international banquet, uh, Vashti is also to put on a feast for the women as well uh, in chapter one, verses five through nine. So both are uh, concurrently holding feasts for the nobles and their wives. And so that's, that's kind of point one or and sub point one. So jump down to the bottom of this skeleton and you're gonna see point A that is in parallel with that first point A where the Feast of Purim is a feast for the Jews throughout the empire. You see the parallel there. So just like Xerxes had a feast for every, every noble throughout the empire, the Feast of Purim was to be observed in chapter nine, verse 17 and 19 throughout the whole empire as well. It's not to be localized um, just to uh, the area of J uh, Jerusalem or, uh, you know, or in the case of, um, of the story of Esther in Susa, the, the capital city of Persia. It's not to be localized into that one center. It's to be throughout the whole empire. Um, and then kind of like a specialized feast. So Vashti is, is kind of a specialized feast for, for the women. Subpoint small a is a specialized feast of Purim for uh, the Jews in Susa, specifically named in chapter nine, verse 18. And the reason that is stated like that is because Hebrew works in parallels. And so it parallels the small a that you see up at the top of this skeleton. Let me go down and, and do point B and C, and then we'll see if you have some questions. So um, point B uh, is a feast in celebration of Esther's ascension to the throne as the queen in chapter two, verse 18. Um, then when you come to chapter eight, verse 17, sub point B, uh, comma, is a feast in celebration of the reversal of, um, of the decree of Haman. So the contrast is while Esther in the first B is ascending through a feast, uh, Haman is descending through the sub point B in chapter eight, verse 17. So there's the parallel in contrast. Esther ascends, Haman descends because the uh, decree has been reversed. Now at the center of this are the two feasts that Esther holds for the king and Haman. So the first one is in ch uh, chapter five, verses one through eight. And you remember that Esther has this feast for the king, invites Haman, but never speaks up about Haman's plan to destroy the v uh, Jews. So a second feast is called for the king and for Haman in chapter seven, verses one through nine. And it is there that she reveals the plan of Haman. It is there that Haman uh, in anger goes outside of the palace. And as he comes back in, he sees Haman begging for his life. And when he does that, the king thinks that he is assaulting Queen Esther. And so um, Haman is then uh, condemned to die upon the gallows that he has built to hang Mordecai. So um, there are all these feasts that kind of become the skeleton of the book and each have a parallel to it. And so A, A, subpoint A, subpoint A, B and B and C and C. And that kind of fleshes out how the narrator is using feasts to drive the story and the plot line of how the Jews are saved uh, and how uh, now the Feast of Purim is a great celebration of that saving activity of this hidden God that never is named in the book, but is kind of behind the scenes. Well, let me see if you have some questions or thoughts there that uh, I don't know if I confused you. So this is kind of technical, but, uh, but in that inverted V, um, you see it works, it's down to the center 
And the center of it is in the second, first and second feast of Esther. She finally uh, lives up to her uh, statement for, uh, that Mordecai says, perhaps you were brought to this position for such a time as this. And uh, it's that moment that Esther then becomes a heroine that brings about uh, the deliverance of the Jews. Now we saw last week that there's other sides to the story when we talked about a little bit about the morality of Esther, but we're not gonna get back into that tonight. So, but, so we leave this as a heroic uh, vision tonight built upon the banquets or the feasts. Some thoughts or questions there? Okay, so let me talk about two things real quick. Um, because you have a mix, both of Jewish banquets and Jewish banquets in the book. And so we need to know a little bit about both of them and uh, what they're desiring to do. So uh, in the Persian banquets, I don't think this is in your notes because I ran out of space, but it's pretty easy to explain. So when the Persians held a banquet, um, the goal of the, of the whole thing is pleasure and overindulgence and over drinking. And so we saw that in chapter one where there was so much intoxication that even King Ahasuerus becomes cloudy in his thinking when he deposes King Vashti off, uh, off, the, um, off the recommendation of the nobles that are there. Well, we don't want our wives rebelling against us. You need to get rid of that queen so she doesn't set a precedence of rebellion by, uh, for all the other women in the empire. So wine plays a dominant role in this. And um, in their uh, love of wine, um, there is also the display of just beautiful ornamental oriental uh, vessels that are used to drink the wine, um, things that, you know, it's sort of like bringing out your fine china. Does anybody actually do that or do you just keep it in the, yeah, in the, in the, in the china cabinet, you know, it's there, it's so beautiful, you never use it type thing. Well, for the Persians, they brought out those type of things for these banquets because it was a way of showing off wealth. It was a, a way of showing off prominence in society, that type of thing. So um, there, there was a lot of drinking, a lot of luxury, um, and then um, a lot of food as well. A very sumptuous affair. Um, uh, and it was interesting, it broke into two parts that they had names for. So if you notice here, uh, Subpoint here on the screen. It says formal banquets in the palace generally consisted of the date non uh, at the that's kind of the dinner party of it, and the symposium that's the drinking after afterwards. So in other words, they would eat first, and then out would come the all the booze, and and with it comes the strippers and all that other type of thing. You know, so. This is kind of characteristic of Persian banquets. Um, it's opulent, it's decadent, it's self-indulgent, all of those type of things. Uh, and and it, it lends itself to gluttony and drunkenness. So um, that's kind of a characteristic of Persian banquets. Um, uh, in contrast to that, the Jewish banquet of Purim is a banquet um, that at first is used to manipulate uh, King Ahasuerus. Uh, the use of the banquet though is for a greater purpose of spoiling the enemy's plan. And um, Esther's quite shrewd about that, the way she calls those banquets together to expose Haman and to um, and to get the king to uh, reverse the decree, which ultimately, because it was a law of the Medes and the Persians uh, type of thing, it couldn't be reversed, but it could be supplemented 
with a secondary decree that Mordecai wrote so that the Jews could defend themselves. So you'll see here that the use of the banquet um, is um, at the heart of Esther's purpose, but the Feast of Purim, um, as it grew throughout history, took on uh, a more noble purpose. And aside from the fact that it's carnival and it's, it's a party day, yet there is found, um, and you know, I forgot to bring my Bible that has uh, the Apocrypha in it, but it, you'll notice uh, there uh, in 2 Maccabees chapter 15, verse 6, the uh, second day of, um, of the banquet actually became known as the day of Mordecai. And it was a way of uh, elevating the importance of Mordecai, but it was also a way to expand, just like your question, Mark, a little bit earlier, it was a way to expand this banquet to two days in total. And when they did that, they did so for a very important reason. And uh, at the core of it, in Esther chapter nine, verse 19, it, there's the use of a word here called manat, and it's the idea of sending portions of food to people uh, that are less fortunate. So you can see kind of the nobility of the uh, Feast of Purim is not just for self-indulgence, but it is also for um, the purpose of uh, giving to other people as well. I'll read verse 19. Chapter 19, verse, uh, chapter nine, rather, verse 19. It says, that is why rural Jews living in villages observe the 14th month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. So did you notice in verse 19, these are not people that are living in the capital of Susa. These are people that are living in small villages. And um, these people tended to, you know, they lived hand to mouth basically. And so this was kind of the one day that they got some extra. And it was not only food, but the giving of gifts was a way of celebrating these people as being a part of the Jewish faith as well. So you'll notice here, um, there is in the middle of this slide here, uh, a subpoint that says the exchange of Manat creates a symbolic communal banquet to which everyone is invited, thus making the banquet the main feature of the holiday. So while there's costume and revelry and drinking, the core of the banquet over time became a way of a symbolic unity and communal uh, fellowship among the Jewish people uh, to make sure everyone felt that they were a part of that community, even though they might not live in a capital city like uh, Susa or, or other capital cities uh, throughout the empire of Persia as well. So uh, I shouldn't say capital cities, but important cities uh, in the uh, empire of Persia. Subpoint here, the story's ending returns to its beginning to transform the banquet motif on several different levels. From an anthropological perspective, uh, these royal banquets uh, reinforce, um, most often in the Persian realm, they reinforce um, uh, social divisions, showcasing wealth and so on and so forth. Whereas the Jews used it as a way of showing mutual relationship with each other. And um, um, most importantly, generosity is at the core toward the poor. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's a concern, not just for themselves, but for other people as well. So let me stop there, see if you have some thoughts. Any, any thoughts or comments there? Okay. So, so there's, we already talked a little bit about Zedekah, um, is justice or righteousness has this strong connotation in the Feast of Purim, but there's also this idea of to come uh, or to come, that should be to come olam, uh, and it's the idea of improving the world. So 
I called this Bible study Perim and the Longing for a Better World because it's kind of built into uh, this idea of being responsible for our fellow human beings. So you, you remember at the beginning of the Torah in the book of Genesis, one of the first stories that we're exposed to is the story of Cain and Abel. And uh, when Cain kills his brother Abel, uh, you know, God confronts him. And you remember Cain, uh, Cain makes, uh, asks this question, am I my brother's keeper? Remember that? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that is, is supposed to be yes. <laughs> yes, you are. We all are. We're all our brother's keeper. So the, the rest of the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, um, they flesh some of these things out. So if you have a Bible, uh, I want you to uh, go back, first of all, um, to the book of Deuteronomy. And you find yourself in chapter 16. Uh, I want us to come down to verse 20. Chapter 16 of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 20. And then keep your thumb in Deuteronomy because we're going to come back to it. I'm going to go over to Leviticus in a moment. So in chapter 16, uh, you come down to, um, to let's, the, the paragraph kind of, um, begins at verse 18, but verse 20 is the one that's important here. It says, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God is giving you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Ooh, is that a is that a good line or what? So bribery um, just you know it blinds the eyes of what is wise and it twists uh, the words of insight and righteousness. Now here's verse twenty: Follow justice and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. So it's almost as if the book of Deuteronomy is saying how you're going to get along in this new world, in this new land, is going to be dependent upon how you take care of the least of these in society, how you structure your laws so that there is fairness and that there is justice. So with that um, comes this idea of Tikkun uh, Olam, which is uh, the world to come. Um, and that is, what do we want our world to look like into the future? So with that comes the idea of if there's something wrong in society, you should put your efforts forth to try to repair the breaches that are in society. And uh, so this Tikkun Olam concerns social justice that helps to repair the world. So keep your thumb in Deuteronomy and go over to the book of Leviticus chapter 25 to the left, uh, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and come to chapter 25. And we're going to see something really interesting here. Yes, I said the word something interesting in the book of Leviticus, which is hard to say, because for most of us, we find it um, cumbersome, tedious, and boring. But um, if you come to the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, in the, in the year of Jubilee, there is the releasing of debt. So uh, come to verse 8 first. And it says here, count off seven Sabbath years. So seven times seven is 49 years. So that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month on the day of atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year. So after 49 years, the 50th year is called the year of Jubilee. Well, here in the, um, uh, 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 I have the TNIV uh, translation with me tonight. It says in verse 10, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. So the, the idea here is um, 
with death comes captivity, comes enslavement. But the 50th year is a, is a year of liberty. It's also called Jubilee. It says here, it shall be a Jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family properties and to your own clan. So what often would happen is when people got in debt, they sometimes had to sell off portions of their land just to survive. Some of them actually were taken into uh, a, a slave relationship with someone with money so that, that they could earn the type of uh, money that they could pay off their debts. Uh, many of them were enslaved for a period of years before uh, they would find their freedom. Um, and then, but on this day, this 50th year, it was a day where all the, uh, the slaves uh, were to go back to their families um, and they were to be given back their family inheritance, the family property that had been passed down from generation to generation. And verse 11 says, the 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is jubilee and is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In other words, leave the edges of the fields for people to be able to glean and uh, be able to take um, what they need for their family. Next verse. In the year of Jubilee, everyone returns to their own property. Verse 14. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. So now you can see in Judaism, it starts to get quite technical. You got to keep track of all these things. And, uh, and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. So you can see, you know, you're, you're doing a lot of book work here to keep track of this stuff. When the years are many, you are to increase the price. And when the years are few, you are to decrease the price because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear, uh, but fear your God. I am the Lord, your God. So you have all these kind of laws that's trying to level the playing field a little bit for people in society who once they're in debt, they can never climb out of it. And they find themselves enslaved uh, to those that have the power in society. So that's one example there of, of that. Um, and what you find taking place is uh, later in the chapter, and I didn't list this stuff on your notes, but um, some of it gets uh, quite technical. Um, if you jump down to verse 35 in the same chapter, it says, if any of your own people become poor and unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that your poor neighbors may continue to live among you. So it's this idea of uh, we don't want you to be sold into slavery. Uh, we don't want you to have to pay off your debt in that capacity. Um, and it's interesting here in uh, Leviticus 25 that there's mention of foreigners as well. Um, uh, verse 47, if a foreigner residing among you becomes rich and any of your own people become poor and sell themselves to the foreigner, or to a member of the foreigner's clan, they retain the right of redemption after they have sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if any of them prosper, they may redeem themselves. So you see the technicalities of this is to try to keep a world um, in balance so that you don't have extreme poverty in society and, and there are factors that are set in place to try to assist that. So when we come back to the Feast of Purim and the idea of helping those who don't have enough, it's kind of built into the DNA of the Torah that this is your responsibility to take care of your neighbor, uh, to watch out for them and so forth. So um, go back to the book of Deuteronomy now. 
and then I'll finish this slide to see if you have any other questions. And then we'll look at one additional passage of scripture in the New Testament uh, uh, in the ministry of Jesus to end our time tonight. So in Deuteronomy chapter 14, if you come down to verse 28, it says here, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your town so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the foreigners and the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that your God, the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So you'll notice some categories that they are especially to take care of. The Levites um, who dedicate themselves to service in the tabernacle and later the temple, and then the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows. So those are categories that they're especially to keep their eye open to, to try to help out. Then in chapter 15, verses 1 through 18, uh, it talks about canceling debts. Again, I'm not going to read all of this. Uh, it talks about freeing slaves. And I might say this, they're operating within their own subculture here. So they didn't see anything wrong with slavery, but they did provide a way to try to allow people to get out from under being enslaved to other people uh, by either their relatives redeeming them or them working off their debt or uh, they're getting paid enough that they can pay their way to freedom, that type of thing. So you have some of that in uh, the New Testament as well. There's a, there's a specialized term called a bond servant. Um, Paul will call himself that in relationship to Jesus. Paul, a bond servant to Jesus, um, is the idea of one that is indebted to another and is in service to that family uh, until they're free. Uh, and sometimes masters would do that. They would free them. So a uh, last statement here, Purim extends the opportunity and the obligation to perform zedekah, that is justice, so that they may establish tekun alam, which is the repairing of the world. So does that make sense or is that too technical for you? Don't, didn't mean it to be too technical, but that's part of what Purim is trying to do, is it's trying to have this ongoing honoring and respect of the Torah that calls upon the Jewish people to take care of one another. Comments, questions? Okay, so we're going to conclude this study tonight in the New Testament. And um, I, I find it interesting that the stories of the banquets in the book of Esther um, finds its fulfillment also as it as the arc of the Old Testament continues to move to Jesus. So um, in the Esther story, we're confronted with a document uh, whose narrative arc is more expansive uh, than just the deliverance of the Jews in the day of Esther. It is an ongoing call to the Jewish uh, people. And it is the story of the human family surviving the threats of extinction that comes by way of hatred and violence. But it is also called to a bigger banquet. And that includes uh, all the human family, not just Jewish people. And so that's why I want you to go to Luke chapter 14. So in Luke chapter 14, Jesus himself picks up on this banquet theme. And uh, it is in relationship to the Pharisees um, who are spying upon Jesus to see if he is doing anything wrong. And, um, and with that, what we find is uh, this idea of uh, Jesus using a very common um, thing that we see taking place in his day, the use of banquets and, and so forth, the additional uh, observation of fe uh, feasts like Passover and Purim as well. So I wonder if he has Purim in mind uh, when he says this. Verse 1, chapter 14 of Luke. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, 
he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. So crickets are in the background. They don't say anything. And then it says in verse seven, when he noticed how the guests uh, picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. So he speaks in a parable. And he says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all other guests for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So um, he first gives a parable that causes them to think a little bit about the idea of trying to push to the top, trying to push to the front, trying to be seen in the spotlight. He says, don't do that, be humble, take the back seat. Uh, if your host sees you in the back, he's the one that's gonna say, come on, come on up to this table. But he doesn't stop there. And this is what's interesting. In verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, so he, he gives a parable about a wedding feast. Now he talks about another type of gathering. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. So that's the ongoing sense of obligation. We all know that, you know, if somebody does something for you, you want to do something back in return, that type of thing. Then he goes on and he says this, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? They can't pay you back. They don't have anything to pay you back. It's not, um, you know, it's not a reciprocal thing uh, at all. All you're doing is turning to someone and giving them a, a blessing and an opportunity uh, that they cannot repay. He says then, Although they cannot repay, he said, they will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, God sees, God knows, and God will repay. Okay, so that's the second time now in this passage he's used the idea of banquet. He's not done a third time. Okay, in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed are those who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has already said, you're going to be re -re rewarded in the next life. And so this guy speaks up and he says, hey, you know, um, you'll get be able to eat at the feast in the kingdom of God because and kind of behind this, I think, is the idea you earned it. But Jesus replied, and here's another parable. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But when they all alike began to make excuses, the first said, oh, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. So another one said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now, all of these could be very legitimate excuses, but the point of the parable, in my estimation, is this. This wasn't a big deal to these people because they're invited to banquets all the time. And so they make an excuse and they don't come. 
So the servant came back and reported this to the master. They've all had other commitments. They all have other commitments. And then uh, the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still more room. And then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and uh, country lanes and compel them to come in so that, they, that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And uh, the idea is, well, they had other obligations. They're not going to get this opportunity. That opportunity is wasted. But those that can't repay, those that never get invited, those who get a once-in-a-lifetime shot to come into this guy's house, they're going to take advantage of it, and he's going to expand the table. And as he expands the table, all are invited, even if they have disabilities like being crippled or lame or blind, that type of thing. Uh, and the poor in the town are as well are brought in and they are given the opportunity to sit at the table and be a part of the community. So you see in this passage, the idea of feast is so prominent in Jewish thinking. And it probably goes all the way back to Esther that this becomes a teaching point for Jesus to indicate that part of the Torah's responsibility for each individual is to take care of other people who cannot help take care of you. Uh, so, um, you know, I just find it interesting that Jesus builds on this motif that we find in the book of Esther and is part of the very skeletal uh, structure of the book. So that's all I have for tonight. And uh, let me open it up to you, see if you have any thoughts on the book of Esther, any additional or extra Esther uh, stuff that you extra might have. Uh, uh, I'm getting some background. Uh, background. Some, so I don't know what that is. Uh, but um, any other questions, uh, thoughts? Um, no. Okay, anybody here have any other thoughts? No? So you can see what looks like a, a simple story in the Old Testament is quite profound in, in a, a variety of different ways. So I hope you've enjoyed the uh, sermon series on Sunday morning and these additional little lessons in Esther on Wednesday night. That's been interesting. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. All right. You're welcome. And, more complicated. Uh, so, um, hope to uh, have you out who's in town on Sunday to our Easter service and uh, uh, see the rest of you online at some point. And if I don't get a chance to see you, I hope you have a happy Easter. Okay. So, right. Thank see you, you Sunday. Bye. 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 Bye.